Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We're going through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really the history of the early church. It's the history of the church from its inception, its beginning, the very first day of the church is recorded in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, and we've been going through this whole book chapter by chapter. Now, you may ask if you're new here or maybe you've grown up in different churches and you may have a a mindset or an understanding in your mind of what the church is. Let me tell you, the church is not the building. The church is not the organization. The church is the people. You are the church. If you are born again and serving Jesus with your life, you are the church. So the church is, again, it's not the entity. It's not the banner that you you wave or the bumper sticker you have, you are the church. The gathering of God's people is the church, his people. And so when we're talking about what the church is supposed to be, really, we're talking about who you're supposed to be. This is not a series that is, okay, well, this is just history and we're just learning some cool facts. No, no, no. This is telling us about our origin so that we can know who we're supposed to be today. This is for your individual life, but this is also for us corporately as the body of Christ. And so I hope you're seeing it this way. This is for you. And so let's dive back into this. So we've been talking about a coming change, a change that has been looming in our chapters as we've been getting closer to it. Well, this, this change happens in this book, in this chapter rather. Chapter 13 in the book of Acts is really the hinge of the book of Acts, meaning it is the middle chapter. It is the middle chapter, but it is also the place where you see this drastic change in the book of Acts, where all of the attention shifts from one man to another. It's a new season. It's a new thing that God is doing. And it begins really in the book of the book of Acts chapter 13. And so we've seen little bits and pieces of this coming to pass, but this really is the turning of the page, chapter 13. So if you will go there with me. And as we talk about the change, we're changing from the so book is about glorifying Jesus, okay? But we've been primarily looking at the life of the apostle Peter. And apostle Peter is a bad man. God has used him to do some incredible, incredible things. He preached the very first message of the church in Acts chapter 2. He was there preaching the message when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began speaking in tongues. He got sent him to a Gentile named Cornelius. The Holy Spirit fell. People started, you know, speaking in tongues, falling out. And so Peter is a man of God and God is using him. He, God's using him to do miracles. He's praying for lame people outside of the temple and they're getting healed. He's taking a stand against the, the corrupt religious leaders of the day. Peter has been the guy. But in chapter 13, everything changes. The attention goes to a man named Saul. And we've talked about how his, his, um, his conversion happened and how God's calling him and all of these different things. But this is the chapter where it really begins. And as I mentioned to you last week, why is this significant? Because the kingdom is not about you. 
The kingdom has never been solely about you. You are a part of the kingdom, but the kingdom is all about making the name of Jesus great. That's what the kingdom is all about. And so I say that God, again, has used Peter and God will continue to use Peter. But now the focus is on another person. And I don't know about you, but most of us, we don't like change. Most of us, we want everything to stay the same, right? We want to drink the same cup of coffee in the morning. We want to come to church and sit in our seat. Come on. This is my seat. And a new person shows up and we don't care about them getting saved. You're in my seat. He said, I don't know if you know who I am, but this is my spot. Right? We don't like change. And it's important to honor what God has done in the past. I love hearing about the stories of what God has done in the past. We should always do that. And as a matter of fact, I think that's one of the problems with younger generations. I can say that because I'm 40. I just always have to remind y'all that I'm constantly telling people, like, you know, hey, I'm 40 years old. What? I thought you were 20-something. Maybe I'll appreciate that when I'm 60, but I'll just say it like this, black don't crack, all right? And so, I think that's, I think one of the issues, one of the problems with the younger generation is we don't take the time to honor what God has done. We don't take the time to gain the wisdom from what God has done before us. None of us are here on our own merit. We're all standing on the shoulders of people who sacrificed to get us here. And I think it's always important to do that and to honor the past. But, but, if we're not careful, we'll get so caught up with what God did in the past that we miss what God is doing right now. God is doing something right now. And I hear people, Pastor, I remember when God used to do this. I remember when God was using our church to do this. I remember when God was using my life to do this. And all of those things are amazing. Praise God for that. But are you a part of what God is doing right now? Right now. I don't say that at all to dishonor the past because honor is a part of moving forward. You can't move forward without genuinely honoring what God has done in the past. You have to do that. But for some of us, we can get so caught up in what he did in the past that we don't recognize we should be a part of what he's doing today. The kingdom did not stop back then. The kingdom did not stop when he was done using me for that season in that way. He still wants to use me today to be a part of what he's doing in the here and in the now. Now, there's also an, an opposite extreme of this as well. And that's those who are so focused on what God is going to do one day. Pastor, I, I feel like revival is coming. I feel it. Or Pastor, I, I, Jesus is coming back soon. I feel it. I believe both of those things are true. I do, and that is great. But if we're only looking at then, we can't look at now. I, I don't wanna live my life just waiting on the rapture to happen. 
I don't want to live my life in a basement somewhere storing up MREs, reading Tim LaHaye books. I want to build the kingdom today. I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing today because God is moving today. God is doing something today. No matter what the world looks like around us, God's kingdom is moving forward right now. And if we're only caught up in what he did then and we're only caught up with what he's going to do, we're going to miss what he's doing now. And you have a part to play in that. You have a part to play in what God's kingdom is doing today. Not just globally, and we can think on that scale because I believe God will send out missionaries from our church as he already has. But what's God doing in Acadiana? What's God doing in St. Martinville? What's God doing in Broussard? What's God doing in, in New Iberia right now and in Youngsville and in Brobridge and Coda Homes? What is God doing even in Cypress Island What's God doing here? And am I a part of what he's doing? So we left off with, in chapter 12 with an angel who had delivered Peter from prison. Peter was preaching the gospel and again got put in prison and an angel came and delivered him and, and also an angel came. We see that he was imprisoned by Herod, right? And so this Herod put him in prison An angel sets Peter free, gets out of prison and an angel also kills Herod. Think about that for a moment. An angel strikes Herod dead because he was receiving the praise that only Jesus should receive. That's how we end at chapter 12. And we turn the page now to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. This is what it says. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria. Let's stop right there. We talked about this place a couple chapters ago. Antioch in Syria. There are two different Antiochs in the Bible. This one is Antioch of in Syria, or of Syria. And this is the place where we saw Barnabas was sent by the apostles to go check out this, this move of God that was happening because they wanted to make sure it was legit. So they sent this man they trusted named Barnabas. And Barnabas said, you know what? You know what this place needs? That guy Saul. That guy Saul who I stood before the apostles and spoke on his behalf and was an encourager to his life and I saw the giftings of God and the hand of God on his life. So let me call him with me to this church. It really wasn't even a church. It was just a gathering yet because the church was in Jerusalem. Or at least that's what people thought. The gathering, the true gathering of people was in Jerusalem. But yet they couldn't, they, they, it was unmistakable that God was doing something unique in this place called Syria. So Barnabas calls Saul with him and they go and they help establish the church. Let's keep going. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man. We'll come back to that. Lucius from Cyrene, Manian, the childhood companion of Herod, King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So we get a snapshot, we get a picture of what the church in Antioch is developing to become and what it's starting to look like. And amongst the leaders of this church, we see five men. And again, the mother church was Jerusalem. 
The mother church that sent everyone out was Jerusalem. But yet, somehow, some way, this church in Syria ends up becoming the mission church. Because Jerusalem was no longer sending people out. So Antioch became the place where God starts using Antioch to send people out from. Let me just say this, and I'm probably going to talk about this at the end of the message. God's kingdom, as I said, is always moving forward. And if you want to see a church that is on its decline, look for a church that no longer has a mission. Look for a church that no longer has a purpose. When the church becomes about me and my three, then you're going to find a church that the Spirit of God is no longer breathing on. Because God's mission is the kingdom. God's mission is not making your church great. God's, the Holy Spirit is not holding up the banner of our Savior's church. The Holy Spirit is holding up the name of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is holding up. And as long as we are glorifying the name of Jesus and we're spreading God's kingdom as we are, God's going to continue to breathe on us and continue to bless us. That's why we have to continue to move forward in the kingdom. We can't stop. We can't decline. This is not, you know, get, get what you can, can what you get, sit on the can. That's not what this is. This is about spreading the gospel. This is about making disciples. This is about the name of Jesus moving forward and taking ground and glorifying Jesus. That's what God empowers. That's what God uses. Are y'all with me this morning? So we see Saul and Barnabas, and they're here establishing this church. And let me stop there for a moment as well. Church is not supposed to be a place that you come and do your religious duty. That's not what church is. Church is not the pit stop you make on one day a week out of church, or in some cases, one day a month, depending on gumbo or duck hunting season. And I love to duck hunt, but just go on Saturday and take me with you. Um, The church is a place that helps you get established in your faith. It's here to help establish you. It is a family that's here to help you grow, teach you the word of God, and establish you in the word of God. That's what the church is. It's the gathering of God's people, the family of God's people, but it's, it's what it wants to accomplish is spread the gospel and build disciples. You make disciples by establishing people in the words of Jesus. This is a place for disciples. If you're here and you're just checking this thing out, listen, I'm glad you're here. I'm very glad you're here. I'm so glad someone invited you or brought you or God's drawn you by his spirit. But the church is a place for disciples who come and get established in this word. And I think sometimes we made, we've made the church all about, if a new person comes, let's not let God speak. Let's not say anything to offend people. Let's not rub anybody the wrong way because we want to keep all the new people happy. People who don't even have heaven as their home one day. People who need the truth of God's word in order to help them be a disciple. We don't want them to be mad at that. That doesn't make sense to me. Today, I hope to literally kick over some sacred cows or cow tipping. Maybe I should have named the message cow tipping today. 
This is not here, again, to help you pray a prayer one time that allows you to have fire insurance. That's not what the church is for. The church is here, not just for the sake of evangelism, but for the sake of discipleship. And I heard it put like this, evangelism without discipleship. If you don't know what evangelism is, evangelism is the process of reaching someone, bringing someone into the kingdom, which is vitally important, right? Paul and Saul, I mean, Paul and Barnabas were they, they were apostles, but essentially they were doing the work of a pastor, the work of an apostle, and the work of an evangelist, as well as teaching people and establishing. So anyway, I, I, here's my point. Evangelism without discipleship is child abuse. Evangelism without discipleship is child abuse. What do I mean by that? You can win someone to Jesus and don't disciple them. Go, all right, go get it. Go raise yourself. It's like having a baby, sitting it down and going, I did my part. That's not the kingdom. It's not how God does things. Another, another amazing thing about this, this leadership team, this budding leadership team in Antioch is that we see it was a very diverse team. And diverse in gifting, I love how it starts off, it, it, it talks about, let me just read it, among the prophets and teachers of the church. So you had these, these gifts, you had prophets in the church, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, you can go back and listen to that message, there are people who are giving the gift of prophecy and the people who are placed in the office of the church of a prophet, someone who God uses to speak directly on his behalf. That's a prophet. And I believe those, th- those gifts are still around today. Why? Because the Bible never said they were going to end. The only time it says that that is going to end is in when the perfect comes. And that wasn't talking about the canonization of Scripture. That was talking about when we get into heaven one day. That's the perfect. That's the perfect. And so anyway, so we have these prophets and these teachers. You talk about two different gifts. But they're in operation, so we see a diverse leadership team. Not only do we see diversity within their gifting, we see diversity within their ethnicity. This was a diverse group, and and this for me emphasizes this. This is what the church is supposed to look like. It is. There's no, and I've said it so many times, but I will continue to say it as long as it is an issue in the area that we live in. There is no such thing as a white church. There is no such thing as a black church. There is the church. The church. That's who we are. The church. Pastor, how do you see that in in that verse we just read? Let me just tell you, Barnabas, we've talked about him in the past. Barnabas was a Jewish man from a Greek culture. Simeon, or some of your translations say Niger, Niger was likely a black man with a Jewish name. So you had this Jewish man, you have this black man with a, with a Jewish name, who knows if he was a black man born in one of these areas, but then you have this man named Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. Then you have this man named Ma, I mean, make sure I say his name right, Manani, Manain. It's tough to say. You try. <laughs> Manain. And he was a childhood friend of Herod Antipas. He was a companion to King Herod. 
Now, the King Herod we're talking about right now, this is Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. This is the Herod that Jesus, when he stood before Herod, he stood before this Herod, Herod Antipas. You talk about two people going in two different directions in life. This man grew up with this Herod. And then you have Saul, who is a very well-rounded Jew. He is a Jewish, he's a Jewish man by his religion, studied under great Jewish scholars, Jewish leaders. He was also a Roman citizen, but he grew up with a Greek culture. So we see a very diverse leadership team, which I believe is what God calls the church to be. Diverse, why? Because those things may be important, but they are not the important thing. They are not the most important thing. And we live in a culture where we've made that the most important thing. My heritage, my culture, where I come from, that makes me different than you. Maybe. But we have the same Lord. We have the same Savior. We, we, We were all saved by the same blood. And we are going to, if we're born again, end up in the same place. So you better start getting to like the person next to you. Every time I kick one over, I'm going to do this and keep going. And we see that these men received a mission from the Holy Spirit while they were worshiping. Another translation says this, that they, they received this mission while they were ministering to the Lord. While they were ministering to the Lord. And that word minister means to serve. Right? How many of y'all have ever said to someone, hey, man, when you, when you gave me that encouraging card, that really ministered to me. Right? That's what that means, ministering to them, serving, doing something that blesses them. And so we see here that this, they were ministering to the Lord. They were ministering to the Holy Spirit. And God called them to a special work while they were doing that. Why am I emphasizing this? Because so many of us minister for God, but we don't minister to him. We're busy doing all kinds of stuff for God. That's why we get burned out and we get tired because we're not refilling our tanks by ministering to him. Spending time with him. You can do a bunch of stuff in his name and never take the time to actually be with him. That's why our cup is empty. That's why we're so dry. That's why we're so burned out. That's why we don't, we don't like people anymore. We don't like ministry didn't work for me. I don't really like being a small group leader pastor. I tried that. I don't really like being on the dream team pastor. I just, I got too much going on. Is your cup full? Because those things need to be an overflow of your relationship with him. And that is your source of intimacy with him. That's why you're dry. We need to have times where we're ministering to the Lord, when we're worshiping publicly, but we're also worshiping privately. Loving on God in in private, beyond Sunday mornings, worshiping him in your car. Go to Spotify. Cut on a worship playlist while you're driving down the the road and just tell him how much you love him. Just tell him how much he's done for you. And you'll be amazed at how often he speaks to you. 
There are moments when I'm driving down the road in my car or I'm doing something else and I'm, I'm listening to worship music. And there's moments when I'm just listening and I go to my place and that's it. But there are other moments when I'm worshiping and there's something different about the atmosphere because he steps into the room. Because I'm ministering to him. Ministering to him, ministering to him in the mornings, ministering to him in the evening. I have a, a time, and I'm not, I'm not ple- I, I, I'm careful about doing this because I don't want to give some kind of impression that I'm some super giant spiritually. I'm not. I'm a man as you are, but I love Jesus. And I have a time that I, I set aside every single day that belongs to the Lord. Every day. I minister to him in those moments every day. I worship him every morning. And I spend time with him. I pray. I worship. I pray in tongues. We've talked about that. <gasps> you do that? Yes, just get the series and we'll explain all of that. Just go back and listen. I pray in tongues every day of my life. I pray for you. I intercede for some of you in the situations that I know going on in your life for our church. I listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Why do I do that? Because I'm a pastor? No, because I'm a Christian. Because I'm a Christian. And my question is, does God have a time like that in your day? Where you set that time aside, where this is his time. And listen, I know we go through seasons of life where that's harder than other times, but I've lived my life in a way where I can, where I tell people, you know, I pray without ceasing, I pray during the day, I pray during the night. If we're being honest, that's not genuine. That may last for like, you do that a week and then all of a sudden, because it's not a commitment you make to him and a time you set aside for him, that just kind of gets lost in the shuffle of your day. Set aside some time, wherever you're at, if it's five minutes, if it's 10 minutes, if it's an hour, if it's two hours, whatever it is, set time aside to minister to the Lord. Are y'all with me this morning? So God calls Saul and Barnabas to a special work and the scriptures don't tell us exactly that they knew what was, what he was calling them to. That's the cool thing about God. Sometimes God says, go where? And then he's quiet. Well, Lord, I know you're stirring me to do something. God, I feel like something is changing. Will you tell me what it is? Not yet. I just want you to obey me. I just want you to trust me. Verse three. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. They sent them on their way. These were sent men. The Holy Spirit called them aside said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work, the special work that I have for them. But then it took the leaders of the church to lay their hands on them and to send them. There's something special about being sent. There's some that were sent and some that just went. There's something special about when you have the blessing of the leadership that God has placed you under to do the thing that God has called you to do. There's a blessing that is attached to when you are sent to something God calls you to do. And not just, I'm just going to go do this. I need to do this. I feel like God, I feel like the Holy Spirit is prompting me to do this, brother. Yeah, but are you sent? Do you have covering? 
Is there a spiritual authority over your life that's confirming that this is God? See, these are the two errors that I see happen often in people when it comes to this. One, God calls them to do something, and I genuinely believe that he does. But in the process of him calling them, he often confirms or does not confirm this by the leadership in that person's life that God himself put in their life. That accomplishes a couple different things. One, you feel the burden of what he's called you to do, but you have to go through the process of learning to wait. You have to go through the process of hearing a word that none of us like. You ready? No. Or sometimes even worse, not yet. God can use that. Is that because God's mean? No, God puts the dream in your heart, but then he puts you through the process of letting the seed go in the ground, die, and then he can birth it. God does that. Man, it's getting quieter. Y'all were real happy when I was talking about gumbo. But I've seen that process happen. Listen, and I know, I know, I know, I know there are dysfunctional leaders out there who try to control people's lives. That's not what I'm talking about. There are exceptions to the rule, but do not automatically assume that you are the exception to that rule. Please don't do that. There are people who out there who are out of their own insecurity, don't want you to move forward or do great things for God. Listen, I want you all to do great things for God. I really do. But I also know that there's times and seasons where in my own life, I've said, God's called me to do this. And I've had people like Pastor Jacob say, you ain't doing that yet. That may be God, but not yet. Or, man of God, you're not doing that. Okay. I submit to your authority. Why? Because God placed you in my life. So either God made a mistake or he didn't. So God called me or people called me. Be very careful of this one. Because there are times when people will go, you're so good at that. You're so good at that. You should be doing that. I can't believe they don't recognize that. You need to be doing that. You should be out there doing this. I can't believe that, man, they, they need to make you this. God never told you to do that. God never put that in your heart to do that. Don't be persuaded by what people think you should be doing with your life. If you're not obedient to the, the, what God has the plan God gave you, there was always someone else with a plan for your life. Believe me, there will always be people with a plan for your life. So the onus is on you to find out what God's plan is for your life. God's plan, God's call. Some are sent, some just went. Verse four, so Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And they went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. Who were they sent out by? The Holy Spirit. It was confirmed by the leadership, but the Holy Spirit is the one who sent them out. So I want you to see this. What they're beginning right now is called the the first missionary journey of Paul. This is the first missionary journey of Paul. And it's not just a journey of like a, a, a preaching campaign where they go out, they hold a tent meeting, and then they leave. Paul would go and preach the gospel and then he would start making disciples and start bringing them into maturity and then establish a church and then put leaders in place of the church. So this was not like I came there for a week, everybody got to hear me preach and I left. No, he came with the intention of establishing the work for God. 
That is called healthy. That is called longevity. That's, Paul, that's what Paul did. And the only times that we really see Paul had to leave early is when there was persecution. And it was either staying and the believers were like, leave, get out of here. We don't want to see you die. And he would keep moving because of persecution or the call of God. But his goal was to establish churches. As a matter of fact, as you read the New Testament, most of the books that you see in the New Testament are written by Paul. And most of those books were written by Paul to a church that he established. So he establishes the work. He makes disciples. He gets, he gets these people following Jesus and in the community with one another in a healthy atmosphere with the call of God on their life. He leaves, but then he checks on them. And he sends them books like the book of Ephesians. He sends them books like, which were really just letters, letters to the church in Galatia, which we call, we have now as the book of Galatians. Or Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. These were these were letters he wrote to churches he established to continue the process of establishing them. Why am I saying that? It's important for you to know the Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. Paul didn't write this book because he knew that Jerome from St. Martinville was going to need to read this. He wrote it to these churches. But we get to benefit from that as we continue to grow as believers. Are y'all with me this morning? So they start off in Cyprus. And this is a really cool moment coming in. I don't want anybody to miss it. I'm, I'm not going to go too much longer on this, but hear me out. They start off in this place called Cyprus, which ironically enough is where Barnabas is from. Barnabas is from Cyprus, so they immediately go to this place called Cyprus. What's Barnabas doing? He's turning around and going to his people now to share with them what Jesus has done for him. And some of you, I believe this, need to turn around and go back to the people that you were with and share Jesus with them. And tell them about what Jesus has done in your life. That is how the kingdom is spread. That's how the kingdom is built. And there were probably people who went to Cyprus High with Barnabas and they were like, Barney wasn't like that when I knew him. But he's a changed man and he got to see the kingdom of God. How the kingdom of the God, they're like, if the kingdom can change Barney, it could change anybody. So we turn back around and we share that. Verse five, let me just say this. Don't just let people see the change in your life. Tell them what the source of the change is. Tell them what the source is. Verse five, there in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. That's important. We'll come back to John Mark. He's going to be a big part in the next chapter. But they begin going to the Jewish synagogues first. They start preaching there. Verse 6, after they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached um, Paphos, Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. A false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So they're obeying God. They're called by the Holy Spirit. They're doing what God wants them to do. And through that, they are led to conflict with a false prophet named Bar Jesus. Now, first of all, a Jewish sorcerer was supposed to be an oxymoron. 
because it was against the Jewish law for you to practice witchcraft. For you to practice sorcery, it was against the law. And so this was never supposed to happen. And let me just address this and say this, because I'm not ignorant to the world that we live in. If you're here and you've practiced witchcraft in your life, which is a real thing, that is something that you should repent of. There are people in our church and people in your life who, whether willingly or or ignorantly, have been a part of witchcraft and, and, and the demonic. And let me just tell you, it is demonic. It is very much demonic. And it places strongholds in your lives that you, people go years and try to figure out, man, why is this an issue in my life? Because you opened up a door for the enemy in your life. You played with something you weren't supposed to play with or you were part of something you weren't supposed to be a part of and you opened up your life to these spiritual bondages and lies from the enemy. That's what happened in this man, bar Jesus' life. Now, Pastor, what do I do if, the Holy Spirit's convicting you of that. What do I do? It, am I stuck? No, you can repent of that and Jesus can set you free of that like he can anything else. Yeah. But it's important to recognize those things. It's important to recognize and to repent of them. And to say, Lord, I'm not gonna be a part of that anymore. I'm not gonna be a part of Ouija boards. I'm not gonna be a part, God, of Wiccan or Wicca. Or I'm not gonna be a part of some of these secret societies that men in our region are a part of. I'm gonna repent of those things and fully commit my life to you. So who was bar Jesus? The word bar, and when you see this in the New Testament, bar means son of. So his name was son of Jesus. Now, clearly he was not a son of Jesus Christ. But son, that name Jesus in that day was a fairly common name because it was really like a derivative or an alternative to the name Joshua or Yahshua or Yeshua, right? And so he, he had this name, son of Jesus, but he was an evil and mixed up man. Verse seven, he had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who went, who was an, an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. So here's this governor who has this wicked man attached to his life, trying to keep him from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just side note real quick. Notice how the Bible describes these two men. It says Paul excuse me, it says Barnabas and Saul. That was done on purpose. The order of that was done on on purpose because that order is about to change. Barnabas was the lead guy. But God was getting ready again to shift things around so that Saul would become the lead guy. But we see here, this wicked man attached himself to the life of the governor. And it's important for you to know there will always be people in your life who try to attach themselves to your life to keep you from obeying Jesus. There will always be people who are there to say, you know what, this whole God thing is just a phase for you. This whole church thing is just a phase. Yeah, you know, I remember I went through that. There'll be people in your life who tell you, do you really, do you really believe that? 
I'll never forget when I, when I was first got born again, I'm a teenager and I'm just happy I'm no longer going to hell. I'm just grateful to God. I'm like, this is great. God finally given my life some purpose or some meaning. Or I finally recognized that my life has purpose and meaning because before Jesus, I didn't feel like there was any purpose attached to my life. And I remember talking to my older sister and I remember her telling me, and I was just basically telling her my testimony. I'm like, she's, God, God saved me. Jesus saved me. He changed my life. That's why my life has changed. She was like, you keep saying Jesus changed your life. You changed your life. You made those decisions. And I knew instantly that ain't God. I didn't do this in my life. Jesus did this. Right? And so in our lives, in our lives, it's important to recognize what Jesus is doing. It's also important to recognize the plan of the enemy. Because the plan of the enemy will be to attach people in your life to discourage what God is doing in your life. I'm finally going to step out and Pastor Gabe and start like discipling people. And you'll have people in your life going, don't do that. Don't do that. You're not good enough for that. I hate to tell you this. You're not ready for that. So there will always be people like this guy, bar Jesus. But look at how God handles this. Verse 9. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Now, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. And so some of us would think, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm probably going to look at him. He's, Paul's probably going to look at him and, like, hand him an encouraging prayer card. Because <laughs> he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's probably going to look at him and be like, you know what, God bless you. Let me pray for you. That's not what Saul does. Verse 10. Then he said, you son of the devil. How'd you like that as an encouragement from the apostle Paul? But it's important. He says, you son of the devil. What was his name? Bar Jesus, son of Jesus. Paul calls him out for what he is. He recognizes what he is. You have to recognize the people in your life that God has not sent there, but the enemy has sent there to be a discouragement to you. You have to recognize that. He says, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. An instant judgment comes on this man because he was trying to block what God was doing. I hope you see something. As we go through these, we go through the book, hope you see that God is kind and God is merciful, but God is also a righteous judge. And not only is he a righteous judge one day in eternity, he's a righteous judge right now. He will deal with us today. And that's why I've preached about, I've preached about this in the past, the fear of the Lord. We need to have a healthy reverence and fear for God. And I've heard people reduce that down to, there's really two extremes. There's the extreme of uh, yeah, fear of God. That basically means like, I recognize God is big. No, no, no. I recognize God is my daddy and he could pull his belt off whenever he feels like it. I recognize that. 
But then there's the other unhealthy extreme. That means I need to walk around. God is so mad at me. He just wants to kill me all the time because I raised my voice to my kid and God's going to kill me. He loves you. He is kind. He is merciful, but he's also a righteous judge. So Paul says this. Now, before some of you start going around and start trying to tell your coworkers God's going to blind them, Right? Before, before you do that, recognize you're not the Apostle Paul. <laughs> okay? And there is an element of us blessing our enemy. And in actuality, I believe that's what Paul did. I believe Paul blessed his enemy in that moment. Pastor, how do you get that? The guy was blind. Who else do we know in the scriptures that God blinded? Paul. Paul knew what that blindness was like. Paul knew what it was like to have to be blind for a season and reevaluate everything you've ever done in your life. And yes, God brought a judgment, but even in God's judgment, I believe it was meant for that man's redemption. Meant for his redemption. Paul said, for a time, you're going to be blind. And instantly it happened. And he had to have someone take him by the hand the same way that Saul Tarsus on the road to Damascus had to have someone take him by the hand. God is a righteous judge, not an unrighteous judge. Verse 12, when the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. I bet he did. (laughs) For he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Verse 13, and I'm closing. Notice how this shift happens. It shifts from Barnabas and Saul to verse 13. Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship, by ship, excuse me, for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. You see the shift? No longer was it about Peter like it's been for the first half of the book of Acts. No longer was he Saul. No longer was he being called Saul. From this point on, he's Paul. That's what the book of Acts refers to him as. Part of that is because of his mission to the Gentiles. Paul was really kind of his, his Gentile name. But no longer is it Saul and no longer is it Barnabas and Saul. It is now Paul and his companions. So the future of what God is doing in the church has arrived. We see this is God's plan. This was the future of what God was bringing into the church at this time. And they had to fully embrace what God was doing in the now. And next week, we're going to take a look at how John Mark affects all of this. Because Paul, there was a moment where Paul was furious with John Mark when he left. Because he felt like John Mark abandoned him and abandon what God was doing. And we see here two men who were willing to obey the call of God, two men who were sent out by God, and one man who left everything that God was doing. Paul and Sarnabas are charting something new, something new that God is doing, and clearly God is with them because he's showing his power. He's called them by the spirit. He's blessing them. And even in the face of persecution and challenges and abandonment, they are stepping fully into the plan of God for their lives. Here's my question for you. 
Are you stepping into the plan of God for your life? Are you embracing what God is wanting to do in your life right now? Not God used to use me to do this. Not one day I'm hopeful God's going to use me to do this. Are you embracing what God is doing right now in your life? Because I know this as a pastor, but I also know this by the Spirit of God. There are many shifts in many of your lives that are taking place right now. Are you following what he's doing? Are you obeying what he's calling you to? Are you going through the process that he wants you to go through? What is God doing in your life now? Now what has he done? I love the past. Now what is he going to do? I'm hopeful for the future right now. God still wants to do amazing things. God wants to do amazing things today, church. I don't care what Instagram says. I don't care what Facebook says. I don't care what Fox News says. I don't care what CNN says. I don't care what whatever you're watching and listening to the media says. I care about what God is saying, and he wants to do great things. Why? It wasn't about all the amazing stuff that God has done in your lifetime or even as we read about this in the Bible. What the Holy Spirit cares about is glorifying the name of Jesus and lost people coming to know Jesus. That's what he cares about. So he's willing to do all of these amazing things, but the goal is not the amazing things. The goal is not so you can one day go back and read your journal and go, whoo, God used to do some cool stuff. The goal is glorifying Jesus right now. And I'll just tell you what I see as I close in prayer. What I see God doing is putting our attention and our focus back where it should be. Glorifying Jesus, reaching the lost and making disciples. That's what he's doing right now. What part do you play in that? Because even as I say what's God doing in your life, some of us instantly think, well, the job that he wants me to have, that's a part of it. The house that God's going to bless me with, that's a part of it. I believe that. But are we making the goal of our lives to glorify Jesus? Because God takes care of all of those things as blessings. God blesses you because you're his child. He cares about that. But do we care about what he cares about? We want him to care about what we care about, but are we caring about what he cares about? He cares about glorifying Jesus and he cares about your friends and your family and your neighbors that don't know him. He cares about the people who come into this church every single week who have not yet been established in the word of God and need someone to grab a hold of them and disciple them and teach them what it means to follow Jesus. Do you care about that? Because that's what he's doing. Are you a part of that? Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the power of your word. And I pray that we will follow Jesus through all of the shifts and the changes in our lives. You're moving things, shifting things, calling us to stay places we don't want to stay, calling us to leave places that we really don't want to leave, causing us to do things we're uncomfortable to do causing us to see things in a new way. Lord, you're shifting things around, but I pray it brings glory to your name. Our lives don't belong to us. They belong to you. And I thank you for what you're doing. 
If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I feel like my life is in a transition period and I don't know what that means or what that looks like. With nobody looking around, I just want you to lift up your hand. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that God gives you the grace for the shifts and the changes and the things he's doing in your life. Come on, lift it up. Don't be embarrassed. Lift it up, lift it up, lift it up, lift it up, lift it up. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hands all over. Lord, you promised us this, that if we acknowledge you in all of our ways, you'll direct our path. And I pray that in every person who's shifting and and moving and sensing you doing these, these things in their lives, I pray you would lay out the path the path clearly for them to follow. You're not a liar. You told us all we had to do was acknowledge you. And for those who know what you're calling them to do and they don't want to do it, give them the grace to see it through your lens, to see it through your eyes. And I pray for the peace that passes all understanding, the peace you're with them. And it's your burden to carry. Jesus name if you're here also this morning and you say pastor I'm not where I need to be with God meaning I'm I'm not born again I'm not talking about I need to ask God to forgive me you can do that on your own you can do that right now where you're sitting but if you're here and you say pastor I've never made the decision to follow Jesus with my life I'm far away from him but I want to be right with him what I'm talking about is again what the Bible calls being born again It's making a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life and to follow him with your life. Jesus told a religious leader, you cannot be born again and you cannot enter, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven unless you're first born again. Pastor, how do I do that? It's as easy as ABC. A, you admit that you're a sinner. You acknowledge that there's sin in my life that separates me from God. B, you believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for that sin so that you can be washed clean of it and stand right before him justified. And C, you confess that he's now the Lord of your life and you're going to follow him with your life. With no one looking around, on the count of three, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand and I want to pray for you. One, two. Three, if that's you, lift up your hand. If you say, Pastor, that's me. I want to be born again. Thank you. I see your hand back there, ma'am. Anyone else? Thank you. See, this is my moment. Thank you. I see your hand back there. You can put them down. Church, pray this prayer out loud with me as we pray together, as we make the decision to surrender everything to him. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe on the cross that you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin. I repent of my sin. And I choose to follow you. From this moment on, God, you're my Father. Jesus, you're my Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. Heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen.